I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say today. And if you have any question, you can come and ask me. Uh, if you need my notes, I can send them to you. And the reason I say this is because you and I have a lot of problems. We have death as our biggest problem. And death is coming. And I don't know when. But the Lord has assured us that it's coming. It may be this afternoon, it may be tonight. And the message that I have, you have to understand what it is that I'm saying. Or what it is that the Lord is saying. So with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning. Our Lord, to honor your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, who has given us his life. Lord, who has gathered us again this morning because of his faithfulness, uh, that we may come and hear about him. We may come and hear about the word of life, about how we may make it right with you. Lord, I pray that you open us our minds and our hearts, that we may hear clearly. And where I fail, Lord, may you make up by your power. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, and we are going to be in verses 7 to 18. We have different emphasis and time on the different verses depending on uh, what the Lord has given me and the time that I have. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 18. And it reads, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See with what letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Sowing and reaping. This is investment and outcome, profit and loss. Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The Apostle Paul here teaches on the principle of sowing and reaping. And he says, Christians, just like anybody else, are also subject to the law of sowing and reaping in this life and the life to come. He says, this is God's law. God cannot be mocked. And by that he's saying, that cannot be changed. It's a decree. It's a rule of God. That what you sow, you reap. Now it tells us that in Ephesians, that uh, believers are created to good works. Believers are created to good works. In Ephesians 2.10, the Apostle Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Christian, the believer, is created to do good works. Created in Christ to do good works. Which means we cannot do good works outside Christ. But it tells us here that when it comes to the principle of sowing and reaping, there are two places of sowing. There are two places of sowing, and there are two ways of sowing, and there are two consequences of sowing. So two places of sowing, two ways of sowing, and two consequences. He says, you can sow to yourself and others. And you can sow to the flesh or to the spirit. And when you sow, the consequence is you can either reap corruption or you can reap eternal life. So do you see, this is the language of accounting here. We are talking about accounting. This is profit and loss. It's investment uh, and outcome. The Lord Jesus Christ taught this in Matthew 16, verse 26. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you see that just in this verse, there are four accounting terms. There's gain, there's profit, there's loss, and exchange. What shall a man give in exchange for their soul? So, according to this, every human being, every person, is engaged in some activity of sowing. Every single person is engaged in some activity of sowing. And there are consequences to where they do the sowing, to how they do the sowing, in this life and the life to come. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, there is a type of sowing that leads to the gaining of this world. There is a type of sowing that leads to the gaining of this world, but results in the loss of one's soul. And by implication, he also says there is a kind of sowing that leads to one gaining their soul. But then he also says by this that you cannot be sowing both to the spirit and to the world. 
You can either be sowing to one thing or the other. You can never be sowing to both. And he says, there's a sowing which, if it's done, your soul can be lost. And when it's lost, there's nothing that can be given for it to be exchanged. So much that he says, even the word is not enough. Even if the word had the idea of how your soul can be recovered, he says, whatever the word has is not enough to recover your soul. And what is he saying? He's saying that there's no redemption in hell. He is saying that the sowing that matters to you can only be done on this side of life. There's no other sowing that happens beyond this life that the Lord has given you. So all the sowing, whether it's right or bad, the consequences are already set here in this life. So he says there are two ways of sowing to yourself. You sow to the flesh, and in the language of Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the flesh, as we have seen in the book of Galatians, he's talking to the person, he's talking to the sinful flesh. And when he's talking about the spirit, he's talking to your spirit, the Holy Spirit, the redeemed spirit, your redeemed spirit. And he says, in the larger context of what he's discussing, remember the subject of the book of Galatians is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he's saying, there's a sowing to the flesh, which in this context, he is talking about legalism and the gospel. He's talking about false religion. And he's saying, if you sow to false religion, there is something, there's a consequence that you are going to reap. Sowing to false religion is going to cause you to reap corruption. But there's an immediate consequence to the principle of sowing and reaping. When we sow in sin, individually, even in our marriages, when we sow sin, there are always consequences. If you steal, there are consequences. You get caught, you go to prison. And when we practice sin, we are sowing to the flesh also. And when we continue to practice sin and we fail to repent and we refuse to repent, there are consequences to that also. In this life and the life to come, if you sow to true religion by faith in Christ, you reap eternal life. That's sowing to the Spirit. And all the sowing that is done in the Spirit is done by faith. All the sowing that we do in the Spirit is done in the context of the gospel. It's never sowing in the spirit outside the gospel. It's never sowing in the spirit outside Christ. It's sowing in spirit in the context of what Christ has done. And sowing in the spirit has two advantages. You reap eternal life, and not only that, even in this life you get the power to live according to the commandments of the Lord. Secondly, we have the second sowing that the apostle talks about. He says, we sow and reap in the lives of other people. And he tells us the context in which we sow and reap in the lives of other people. In verse 10, he tells us that 
So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So he says we are required, we are expected to be sowing in the lives of other people. And he has already told us how we sow in the lives of other people by bearing each other's burdens by loving one another and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. So the believer here is specifically told by the commandment of the Lord to prioritize the needs of the household of faith. The body of Christ is your family. We say blood is thicker than water. And the blood of the Son of God is thicker than anything that you can imagine. So the Lord tells us to prioritize our thinking and says... We have to be considering the needs of the people in the body of Christ. This does not say you cannot take care of your family. But the Apostle James tells us that the one who doesn't care about his family is practicing defiled religion. We are required to take care of our families. But even in the context as we are taking care of the needs of the body of Christ. Now there's a problem as we saw in the context of the gospel. Because when we saw in the context of the gospel, we are going to have trouble with the enemies of the gospel. We are going to have trouble uh, by the enemies of the gospel and there's real evil and suffering to be had when you saw in the context of the gospel. But the apostle says, when you saw in the context of the gospel, there is eternal rewards to be given. There are eternal rewards to be given. So the exhortation for us is not to get weary in spite of the trials and the tribulations that we may have. We are not to get tired or weary in spite of the trials and tribulations. And he says in Philippians 3 verse 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you forget about all the other things. I, I know a lot of people, they are so much into their own families that they won't do anything for the church. They will not give money to the church. They won't support anything. They're always thinking, well, I should have sent this money to my mother. I should have... That's all good and right. But we have to prioritize the needs of the gospel. In Hebrews 6.10, the writer says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and the labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God will not forget anything that you have done for the sake of Christ. I, I, I preached here a few weeks ago uh, when I was teaching on justification and I said a Christian never makes a loss. You will never ever ever make a loss. Whatever loss that you think you make is only temporary. The Lord will always recover everything that you have lost and more. And that's the truth. He's going to do it. In Galatians 6, 12 to 13, the apostle 
now goes back as he prepares to close this book. He goes to, uh, to close this book. There are two issues again here in, in Galatians. Justification by faith and legalism. Okay? You have the Judaizers in the church who are trying uh, to upset the gospel. He says in verse 12, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Legalism does not arise from a vacuum. It has motives behind it. And if you recall, the Apostle Paul said to the the Judaizers and the Galatian church that, guys, you are bending yourself to the Judaizers. You are being foolish. And you sound like you are bewitched. All you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you is being foolish and bewitched when you allow yourself to be detected by legalism for your acceptance by the Lord. So the Judaizers were saying, for one to be complete, to be a complete Christian, they needed to add the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised. That is, they needed to add something to the cross. So in these verses, what we are going to see is we are given the profile and motivation of the legalists. And the legalist is not necessarily just the person. It can be a church body. It's not necessarily just an individual person. It can be a church body. And what we see as the profile of the legalist church or individual is that they do not deny Christ. The legalists do not deny Christ. They just add to what Christ has done. They don't deny Christ. The Judas were saying, yes, we believe in Christ, or we have faith in Christ. We believe he died and he resurrected, but at circumcision. So the Apostle, Apostle Paul reminds us and says, if you think you are accepted by God through believing in Jesus plus doing the right things, do's and don'ts, being a good person, you really are not trusting in Jesus at all. That's what he says. You are essentially trusting in yourself. And Jesus becomes your project for your own self-salvation. Jesus is beginning something that you come and finish yourself. And Christ says, if you have to come to me that way, you might as well stand alone. I either stand by myself or you stand alone. You can never mix me and you. Not in terms of salvation. So legalism has a lot of problems for the one who practices it. It is a hard taskmaster because you can never feel satisfied by the things that you have done. There's always something else to do. And you work harder and harder and harder. And the harder you work, the harder you fall. And guess what? You've already fallen back into spiritual bondage. There's no more freedom for you anymore. But the true gospel says 
Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. The true gospel says Jesus has done it all. It is finished, he said, on the cross. He said it's all done, it's all complete, because Christ is the all and in all of all things. That's why his name is also the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end of your salvation. The true gospel says you are 100% accepted, 100%, not 99%, not 99.9%. The true gospel says you are 100% accepted by God, by what Christ has done. And not only that, you are 100% justified by God. You do not need to improve that. That cannot be improved. So, by this principle, are all the strategies of self-salvation destroyed. All the strategies of self-salvation are destroyed by faith alone in Christ alone. And thank God that they are destroyed because it's good for you that they are destroyed. And a lot of people will struggle when we tell them that they can't do it. You find that when people are talking, yes, they'll say they believe in the Bible, they believe in Christ, but they don't believe in faith alone. They don't believe in Christ alone. They believe in Christ plus something else. They believe in Christ plus their decision, their free will, something that they have to do to complete their salvation. But the truth of the matter is, grace refuses to be mixed. Christ refuses to be mixed. If you collapse one of those things, you collapse the whole thing. If you add to grace, you have removed Christ. If you have removed something from Christ, you have removed righteousness. If it cannot be done, it's impossible. So the true gospel says you are 100% justified and you are sanctified and you are 100% the child of God. Galatians 12, the motivation of the legalists. He tells us why people want to be legalists. It's, it's a natural thing that we have because we inherited it from Adam and Eve. But this is what he says. Those who desire to make a showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they compel others to imitate them in their legalistic projects so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So what legalism tries to do is it tries to neutralize the offense of the cross. It tries to neutralize the offense of the cross. Why? Because to the fallen, the cross does not taste good. The cross does not smell right. And we know this from 2 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 14 to 16, where the apostle says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ 
and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, and to the other an aroma from life to life. So the cross has an aroma, and there are only two kinds of aroma that you're going to have about the cross. It's either going to smell of life, or it's going to smell of death. A foul smell. And that's the offense of the cross. So the legalist knows that. They know the offense of the cross, and they try to remove the offense of the cross. They try to neutralize it. So what is happening? What do people do to make the cross more attractive? People want to make Jesus Christ more approachable. They want to make Jesus so docile. They want to make Jesus so attractive to the world and remove the sting from the cross. Some of the things that I've seen that are familiar to all the people who, um, who cares about the gospel, uh, we see the introduction of Halloween into the church. We are seeing Easter egg hunts in the church. That's making the cross approachable to the world. We see all these things, marriage conferences, financial university seminars, adoptions, homeschooling, where the gospel is not preached. And you see a lot of the things that happen with legalism are not necessarily bad things in themselves. But the problem is when we make them part of salvation, when we make those things part of salvation, that's where the problem becomes. There's nothing wrong with homeschooling. There's nothing wrong with adopting. But if you make that the basis of my eternity and acceptance by God forever and ever and ever and ever, we have a lot of trouble. You can't do that. This is not only simplifying the cross of Christ, you're cheapening Christ. Christ is the Son of God. If the Son of God has to leave his throne to come and do these things on your behalf so that he may have life, you don't play with that. We don't play with that. We appreciate as Christians that we have common denominators that we find among the people that we find as good. Every Christian loves for our communities to have law-abiding citizens. That is good for the community. That's good for everybody. We agree with that. But as Christians, our unity is not in that we are law-abiding citizens. Our unity is in that we are united by the person and work of Christ. We are united by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we are not united to Christ, we have a hopeless eternity. We do have a hopeless eternity if we are not united to Christ. So the Apostle Paul says, the legalists do the things that they do so as to avoid the offense of the cross, so that they do not put the gospel ahead of all their interaction with everybody. And we know from uh, Apostle Peter that 
Uh, Jesus Christ is the rock of offense and the stone of stumbling. He says, those who get offended shall trip over him. They shall trip over him. But those who believe in him shall never be ashamed. Those who believe in Christ shall never be ashamed. Second motivation for the legalists, verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So he says the legalists do not even keep the law themselves. But what do they do? They pick and choose things that they think they can do, and then they recruit others. Why? So that they may boast in them. And say, look at them. They're doing all these wonderful things. We taught them how to do that. Okay? And they're so mature and complete Christians because of what we taught them. So the motivation that I need you to be careful about is who we are. We are the fallen. That's our starting point. We are sinners. And since the fall... The inclination of our minds and our hearts has been towards evil continually. And Jeremiah says, And the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And because our hearts are deceitful, what happens is we are always seeking approval. We are always seeking approval. So what we do is we set these things that will make us look righteous so that we look very righteous and spiritual. In the theology of Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 3, I would say we still want our fig leaves back. We still want our fig leaves back because they give us a sense of security and satisfaction when we have covered, when we are covered by the things that we have done ourselves. And yet, we are still naked and shameful. Our fig leaves can only give us minimum coverage. They can never give us the coverage that we need. God himself has to come and cover, the, cover us. And that's exactly what he has done. That's exactly what he has done in Christ. He has offered the sacrifice and he has covered our nakedness. He has covered our shamefulness and he has covered all our sins. But this place perfectly in the church life and religion. The fig leaf theology plays perfectly into church life and religion. The temptation is to turn morality or ceremonies into external things we use to prove that we really are accepted by God. And that's not good. The funny thing about when we set the morals and the standards, the, the morals and the standards differ from church to church, from person to person. But the cross remains the same. The demands of the cross remain the same. It says, if you have to approach me, you have to approach me this way. I am the way, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You have to approach God the same way, even though our rules are constantly changing. So that's the bad thing about legalism. We can establish our own rules here at Faith Bible. You go to Jersey Church, they have their own rules. You go to the Catholic Church, they have their own rules. But those rules, if they are not the gospel of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, those rules will never 
ever give you life. So the apostle says, the legalists desire to do the things that they do because they want to make a bust in your flesh as their trophies. Okay? So be reminded that the gospel, the true gospel, says God has forgiven you. Despite of all your weaknesses, despite of all your failures, the gospel says you have been fully accepted by God. God, when he sees, it, sees you, he sees Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of our salvation. He doesn't see James. Because if he sees James, he'll kill me. He wants to see his son in us. And it's the experience of everyone that in everything, people are never offended by do's and don'ts as much as they are offended by the cross. People rarely are offended. If you had to go to people and say, well, come to our church, we'll show you one or two steps of how to make it right with God, and they actually are the ones who have to do it. You get into this pond, you get out, and you say a prayer, and they're the ones driving the shore, and they don't get offended by that. They get offended when you tell them that they're a sinner, and there's nothing that they can do about it. They, they get offended. And, and listen to what the Lord had here in Luke 18. 18, verse 18 to 21. A ruler questioned him, the, the, the rich ruler, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. Of course, this young ruler was lying. And yet he still wanted to do more things. He said, All these things I've done right from when I was a youth. Just give me some more things that I can do so that I can inherit eternal life. The, the, the interesting thing about this story is this young man asked the right question and he also asked the question to the right person. He asked the right question to the right person. But the problem was he wanted to do it himself. Okay? And the Lord saw the folly of what he was saying and he says, guess what? I'm not even going to give you the ten. I'll just give you the five. And he says, oh, I've done all those things right for my youth. And he says, well, Okay, one thing you still like, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. <laughs> so Jesus gives him something that he couldn't do. Go sell all that you have, and then come follow me. And my brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the gospel is saying. If you want to approach God based on what you have done and can do, God will always give you something that you can't do. He will always give you something that you can't do for this reason and this reason alone. That you as a sinner can never merit heaven. You cannot merit eternal life by your own works. It's impossible. It's never been done. 
And in John 6, 28-29, we have the conversation of the Lord with the Jews. The Jews came to the Lord and said, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Do you think the Jews were happy with that? Of course not. <laughs> this is here something very, very simple. We want to do something, Jesus, give us something to do. And the Lord says, you want to do something? Let me tell you something to do that's so easy. Just believe in him who God has sent. And they're like, no, no, that's too easy. Give us something to do. But show us a sign. Because we, we, we know our fathers, they had manna in the desert. Can you show us a sign so that we can believe? <laughs> it's amazing. But then Jesus says, even that manna, it's not Moses who gave it to your forefathers. It was my father. Actually, the Lord was insinuating to them that I am the one who gave them the manna. And I am the bread from heaven. But then this is something that I don't want you to miss what the Lord was saying. When the Lord was saying, believe in me, the work of God is to believe. Do you see? This is very brilliant. But that's the same theology of salvation. He is saying, faith in Christ is the greatest work that you ever do. Because it's impossible, you can't do it. The, the greatest work that you ever do in this life is to believe in Christ. You can build all kinds of tall buildings. You, you can have a highway across the seas. That's not the greatest work. The greatest work is to believe in Christ, and that's impossible because it requires the power of God to actually cause you to believe. Now, Christians and churches, we pick up on that. We want to avoid the offense of the cross. So when we have someone who comes to us, instead of telling them the truth about the Bible, the truth about salvation, we tell them what to do. We don't tell them they need to believe in Christ. And the cross says, no one can keep the standards of God. That's essentially what the cross is saying. It's saying you can't do it. You have no ability to do it. Even if the Lord would require you to do it, you can't do it. You have to believe. But this is the beauty of faith. Because when you come to Christ and you believe, your work is done right then when you believe. Right away. If you believe right now, you die right now, you have completely done the work of Christ 100%. And, and your faith doesn't have to be 100% perfect because you can never have 100% perfect faith. But your faith is 100% because it's connected to one who is 100%, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, do's and don'ts are attractive to us as Christians and even as people. Why? Because they create the false impression that salvation is within our hands. It creates the impression that salvation is doable. If we just think about it carefully, we just make a careful evaluation and then make the right decisions. That's what do's and don'ts do to us. They, 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 they create the false impression that we have ability in ourselves to determine our destiny. You hear all these people, the secular people, just talking about 
oh, your destiny is in your hands and all those kind of things. No, your, your destiny is in the cross of Christ. You come to the cross of Christ, your destiny to life is in there. You get away from the cross of Christ, your destiny to hell is in there. So the cross says, you are a hopeless sinner who is in need of God's grace. In chapter in verse 14, the Apostle Paul now gives us the solution to legalism. The solution to legalism. Verse 14, he says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's his solution. And that is his argument throughout the whole book of Galatians anyway. That you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But he goes to the cross. You see, Apostle Paul is an apostle of the cross. There's no apostle who has taught us the theology and understanding of the work of Christ more than Apostle Paul. So when he's talking about the cross, he's saying a whole lot of things. What is the cross anyway? We have been talking about the cross. What is the cross anyway? When we're talking about the cross, we are not talking about the piece of wood. We are not talking about the piece of dead wood. There's no life or forgiveness of sins in a piece of wood. When we talk about the cross, we are talking about the person of Jesus Christ. We are talking about the person and then the work of Jesus Christ. That's the cross. We are talking about the work of obedience by the Son of God. You see, on the cross, there were three people there. All of them were on the cross. But there's this one, this particular one who is in the middle. This particular one. He's doing something else that nobody who was on there was doing. He was doing a particular work. He was doing a work of atonement. He was being humiliated. When we talk about the cross, my brothers and sisters, we are talking about the humiliation of God. And this is how God gets humiliated. On the cross, God is treated as a sinner. On the cross, God is carrying your sins. My sins. Past, present, and future sins. The sins of all God's people. On the cross, the Son of God succumbs to death. The one who has life in himself succumbs to, life, to death. That's the humiliation of the Son of God. So when the Apostle Paul is talking about the cross, he has a much higher view and understanding of who Christ is. And we should not come then and try to reduce it to things that are perishable, to things that we do in ourselves. This is the work of God. This is the Son of God who is hanged. Colossians 1, 19-22 For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That is saying, it pleased the Father that the fullness of the deity of God should dwell in Christ Jesus. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, 
And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That is very good news. That is what the cross is doing. The cross is reconciling you who were at enmity with God. And the cross has already done that. Don't try then to bring the things that you do yourself and do the reconciliation by yourself. God does not accept that. So the apostles say, the cross is God's instrument of removing you from the world. That is the corrupt and sinful, sinful world that is under the dominion of sin, death, and the evil one. It's only by the work of Christ on the cross that you are removed from sin, death, and the evil one. But if you look at the wages of the world, is this graveyard. This is all the world can give you. After everything is said and done, they have to come and bury you there. But the cross says, no, the game is not yet over. It goes beyond here. So he says in Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So the power of the evil one was disarmed. All the principalities, all the fallen angels were disarmed by what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. There's another element to the cross that I need to bring to your understanding. It's the Son of God who is on the cross. It's God who is punishing His Son. And if God is punishing His Son to the point that the Son would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that telling you about God? It's telling you that if He cannot stop punishing His Son, if he can't change his mind on punishing his son, he is ready to kill you. So the cross is both an invitation and a threat. It's an invitation to you who come by faith and come to the foot of the cross. But it's a threat to anybody who comes and tries to exalt themselves about the work of Christ. It's a serious threat. And the cross is so important that in the mind of God that the Bible, especially the New Testament, when it talks about the condemnation of the wicked, it puts, puts it in the context of rejecting the gospel. You're not going to be put to hell because you didn't listen to your mother. You are not going to be put to hell because you stole something. According to Second Thessalonians 8, Verse, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and 9, you will go to hell because you refused the gospel. He says, with flaming fire, he will meet out punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. So having said that, Apostle Paul says, this is my glory. If I have to boast, I only boast in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, through whom I have been crucified to the world, and the world to me. And then he says in verse 15, because of that Christians do not boast in what they do or do not do. 
For neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So he says, circumcision or uncircumcision, what you do or what you don't do, doesn't really matter. What matters is that you are born again. What matters is that you are born again because we know from the Lord Jesus in John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So for the Christian, the reason why they don't boast, the reason why they are secure, is because they know they are new creatures. So much that Apostle Paul would also say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So it is the new creation in Christ. It is the new creation in Christ that makes you acceptable before God and not a list of things that we do. The apostle tells us about the benefits of the cross. He says, the cross frees you from trying to be righteous with God by your own attempts. All world religions will tell you what you have to do. And they have different kinds of things that you can do to be acceptable by God. But the cross says, you have been freed from trying to be accepted by God. You have been accepted in the beloved. Come to Christ and, and have your sins forgiven. We are told that the cross is your identification with Christ and that you belong to him. Uh, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ said in, verse, uh, in John 15, verse 18 to 21. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who has sent me. So the Lord says, you are a slave to him. You are owned by him. So by that he's saying, you are united to me. And because you are united to me, those who hate me will also hate you. And that happens because of the cross. And the cross enables you to endure suffering. You remember he said trials and tribulations. And we as Christians are able to endure suffering because of the cross. In John 16, the Lord says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the Lord has overcome the world for you and me. So we should be of good cheer. And in verse 16, then the, Lord, uh, the apostle says, And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is he saying? The word that's translated rule there is saying a straight line instrument. It's a straight line instrument for measuring things that are crooked. And he's saying to those who walk by this straight line, receive peace and mercy from God. What is that straight line that he's talking about? Who we'll walk by this rule of faith alone, Christ alone. That's the rule that he's talking about. So he's saying, 
If you move away from this rule, there's no peace and mercy from God with you. It's not coming. It's not going to happen for you. You have to walk. It's a very tight rope that you have to walk on. Now to our last verse, verse 17. The apostle says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. This is a very, very, very powerful statement. If you just read it, first reading, you won't get what he's saying. The apostle here says, Let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. What were the brand marks? The brand marks that Apostle Paul is talking about were brand marks that were put on slaves. They were cut into slaves by their owners for identification. And this was saying he belonged to someone else. And nobody could take him to be their own slave because they were already marked. And he says, do not disturb me. Leave me alone. I already belong to another. But he's saying more. He's saying, I am identifying with the sufferings of my Lord. I am identifying with the sufferings of my Lord for the sake of the gospel. And he says, look at me. I've been branded and marked with shocks like those of my master, Jesus Christ. And I belong to Christ. And he's saying even more than that. He's saying the Judaizers have their own marks of circumcision. He's saying they have their marks of circumcision. They have the marks of the law of Moses. And he says, no, I don't carry the marks of the law of Moses. You carry the marks of the law of Moses by your circumcision. I carry the marks of my Lord Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying you cannot be saved by the law. He's saying it's all by grace. It's all by gospel. It's not by works. You cannot mix grace and works. And in conclusion, I was thinking, how should I end? Given everything that I've studied and learned from this book. I've learned a lot from this book than you guys probably have learned. A lot of the things I've not shared for lack of time. But this book had me crying by myself, even a few days ago. I was sleeping, woke up around 3 a.m., and I was meditating on the uh, verse that I just talked about, about the brand marks, and I started crying by myself. That this is what the Lord has done. That the Lord has borne the brand marks that I may have forgiveness of sins. And that this is the true gospel, and this is the only hope that I have. There are just way many things that I've said. But I thought maybe a reminder of Galatians 5 verses 1 to 4 would be very, very important. And if this would be my last sermon, if this would be my last sermon, Faith Bible, Galatians 5, 1 to 4, you have to imprint that. This has to be the way for you when you are getting out of alignment. You have to tattoo this on your head. In your mind, you have to remember this. When you try to do anything that exalts itself above Christ, go back to Galatians 5, verse 1 to 4. And this is what he says. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. 
Yes, we are actually free people. He says, therefore, keep standing firm. That's an exhortation. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, he says, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In faith Bible, I testify again to you, to every man and woman here and every child who can hear what I'm saying, that if you practice legalism and expect to be accepted by God, that you are under obligation to keep the whole law. And not only that, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. The cross, my brothers and sisters, is a person. It's not just some other thing that happened. It's actually the person of Christ. It's the person of Christ that all the work comes to us. It is Christ. It is our payment and forgiveness of sins. It is our life. It is our justification. It is our peace with God. If we ever have hope to see God, and we shall see God, but if we are to meet God and see him in peace, it's going to be the cross. Run to Christ. It doesn't matter even if you grew up in the church. Run to Christ. Your salvation is not in growing up in the church. Your salvation is in trusting completely in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. My question to you, and that will be my last question, what brand marks are you bearing? Are they brand marks to help the cross? If so, let me tell you something. You can't help the cross. You can't help Jesus. The cross does not need your help. It came to help you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. We thank you, Lord, for the cross of Christ. We thank you for the person of Christ who made the cross something to behold. Who died a death that we could not die. Who took all our punishment on himself willingly that we may have forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we are prone to wonder. We start off well by faith and we seek to be perfected by the flesh. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to recover the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Lord, even in our weakness, Lord, we know your hands are not short to reach. To reach our minds and our hearts and to imprint your truth on them. Lord, we pray that faith Bible will be known for nothing else but that we preached and taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that those who came to the truth that was shared, who believed in the Christ that we preached, will never be ashamed. Lord, may you be with us this day. May you remember your people for the sake of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.